Uh, we are back in Genesis 43, having just begun to look at it last Sunday. Let me read the rest of the chapter, picking up at verse 15. Genesis 43, beginning at verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys." So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and we came to the lodging place. We opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you, and do not be afraid. Your God... And the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water and had washed their feet, and when he had, when he had given them their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your father, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your abounding work, and thank you that you bring us to yourself. You break us of our stubbornness, of our self-will, our arrogance, and you drive us to our knees and cause us to plead for grace and plead for mercy. And finally, to come to Christ with broken and contrite hearts. Oh Lord, now we must endure by faith, with joy, serving our God. Teach us more about Christ. Let us worship Him. Let us cling to Him. Let us endure to the end. For only he who endures to the end shall be saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget... One particular day, quite a few years ago, when our son was maybe three years old, maybe four, and Barbara called for him for some reason, 
silence. Okay, not that unusual for a, a boy of that age, right? So she went looking for him, calling his name. Silence. Where was he? She began to worry a little bit. Our house then was surrounded by, by woods, and we began to be concerned he could have wandered off. He was prone to do that. And so she and I went from room to room looking for him in our small house. It wasn't very big. Where was he? We called his name, getting louder, louder as panic started to creep into our hearts. You maybe have been there. We raced around the house and raced outside, looking in the woods, looking everywhere, calling out his, calling out his name, now in a, in a, in a nearly full-blown panic. Still no answer. We raced around the house, throwing open closets, doors, looking under beds, looking everywhere we could look. And finally, in one closet, the doors having been shut, he was sitting there on the floor playing with something just as quiet as could be, wondering why on earth his parents were in such a panic, shouting his name so loudly. Well, he had been safe all along, of course. But let me ask you this. What would you do? Parents, if one of your children was actually lost, you would do anything to find your child. What would Jesus do to find one of his lost children? I think we see that in Joseph. He seeks and saves the lost. Well, Jacob's sons, as we read, including Benjamin this time, travel again to Egypt to again buy food in Egypt and to again appear before Joseph in Egypt. And so the first time in over 20 years, Joseph lays eyes upon his beloved brother, Benjamin. Just imagine for a moment that you hadn't seen your brother or maybe your sister, the one with whom you once were closest, just intimately close siblings, and you hadn't seen that one in 20 years or more. And suddenly that brother or that sister was there with you. You can imagine the emotions. Well, that was the case for Joseph. In fact, interestingly, Benjamin was just a, a boy when he was sold into slavery and when he lost that time with his family. And now Benjamin was a grown man. But don't fail to notice what's unstated here. You remember that Simeon had remained in Egypt, and now the other ten brothers are coming into Egypt, so for the first time in, again, over 20 years, all 12 sons of Jacob are together. How many times must Joseph have longed for that day? How many times must he have imagined, could it ever happen? It would have to happen because he had the prophecies from the Lord. He knew it would happen. How many times did he dream of that reunion? Imagine how it might happen. And yet, here all of his brothers were now together. Now! And yet, it really couldn't yet be a reunion, could it? Not yet. And so, it wasn't yet time for him to reveal himself as being Joseph, their own flesh and blood. Because for a real reunion, I mean one that involves reconciliation, and relational healing, there must be a change of heart. And see, God, through Joseph, 
was pursuing the hearts of these men. Beloved, there is no forgiveness. In spite of what maybe some churches seem to teach, there is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no real reconciliation without restored unity and love. And so these men needed to repent of their arrogance, their pride, their selfish pursuits, their hatred, their murderous acts. They needed to humble themselves before God and even before Joseph and confess the evil that they had done. And only then could there be true reconciliation and restored family unity and love rather than just being together with a pretense of being one family, but actually still being divided in heart. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, the very first one, blessed are the, what? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who look within and say, I have no assets. I have nothing in my account. Because unless we acknowledge our spiritual poverty, we will never cast ourselves upon Jesus as Savior. What's the point? Unless we know our desperate need for forgiveness and salvation. Because it's only when we recognize our absolute lack of righteousness and our desperate need of righteousness that we'll flee to a Savior. Which is why most people, in fact, never come. Faith and repentance are inextricably bound together. Neither exists unless both are present. Because faith is a believing turning away from sin. And repentance is a turning away from sin that involves trusting in the promise of the one who offers forgiveness. Faith without repentance and repentance without faith are spurious and false. And so Joseph needed to know, are these men broken and humbled before God? Well, when he saw his brothers had returned with Benjamin as he had commanded, apparently no words were spoken at that time, or at least nothing recorded. But Joseph instructed his servants to go and prepare a meal. For these men, these foreigners were to dine with him at noon. And of course, the predictable response was what? Fear on behalf of the brothers. They were at Seemed still dazed and confused. They had no idea what was going on. They were told to bring Benjamin back as proof of their honesty. And having done that, they would have expected that Simeon would be released. They would be able to buy their food, and they'd hit the road, Jack, and don't come back ever, hopefully. They couldn't have anticipated being called into the ruler's own home to dine with him at his table. But wait a minute, they're scratching their heads. There was that matter of that money that was in their sacks when they traveled home the last time. That's got to be it. That matter had been discovered. They were being set up to be plundered and enslaved and ruined. But why did that happen when they just came into the country? They crossed over the border. And why would Joseph, or why would this ruler, invite them to the table, to dine with them. This must be some kind of sick plot to humiliate them. No. No. Joseph was doing good 
to those who had done evil to him. He was overcoming evil with good, though they didn't understand that. But that's what was happening. It's important to notice that they told the truth and actually confessed what happened. They were showing that they were honest men. They were becoming honest men, at least. And these were good signs, signs of their maybe humility, a little bit of humility, and their growing integrity. And so they took a risk in being honest and telling the truth. They believed that they would be, at least they hoped they'd be treated fairly, even though they hardly treated Joseph fairly years ago. Even so, they wanted fair treatment for themselves. And I just say that to point out the hypocritical nature of the human heart so often, right? But yet there was no risk. Because look at the steward's reply in verse 23. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. That word peace is the Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, it's the, it's the word shalom. Okay? Joseph and God was offering them shalom, wholeness, healing, well-being. And Joseph must have instructed his steward as to the exact words to say, because the steward was Egyptian, of course, he wouldn't use this language. He said, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks. That's a Hebrew phrase. It's commonplace in the Old Testament. For example, on the occasion of the dream of, remember, Jacob's ladder, famous part of Genesis, and God said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Well, Jacob himself had used that phrase in chapter 32 when he prayed, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. So Jacob's sons were familiar with that Hebrew language, that covenant language, that prayer address, if you will, which is why Joseph must have instructed his servant to speak in that way, to remind these men, his brothers, that God had made a covenant with their family, the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to these 12 sons. God had made this great promise, and furthermore, He had not forgotten His promise. And in fact, God of Israel was present with the family of Israel even in Egypt. He was not some territorial God like the Egyptian gods. He was God of all, God of all creation, God of all people, God of all power and might, and He was with them there in Egypt. And then Simeon was brought out and set free. They were given refreshment and food for their animals, and they unpacked their gift and prepared to give it to the ruler at the noon meal, hoping that all would go well finally and they could leave with their food and go home. And Joseph arrived at noon to dine with these foreigners, who of course he knew to be his own brothers. And it's interesting, if you remember back the scene at the cistern when they, threw, when they first threw Joseph into the pit, what did they do? They ate and drank without Joseph. And now here is Joseph eating and drinking with them. He is overcoming evil with good as he invites them to his table as the servant leader. 
And be sure to notice verse 26 when his brothers are bowing down to Joseph again in fulfillment of his dreams. And yet again, notice Joseph's rule over his brothers was what? It wasn't the, the rule of a tyrant. It wasn't the rule of an oligarch. It was the rule of a servant leader seeking to do good to his brothers, seeking to bless his family, that his family might have a future and a hope. And so Joseph asked about his father. He must have wondered if his father, an old man back then, was still alive after all these years. Was he well? Did he have shalom? And then he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin. And again, imagine you, the emotions. He couldn't contain himself. He was about to break down and cry like a baby. So he, he had to leave the room. Otherwise, he would have revealed himself as, or perhaps risked revealing himself as their brother. And he couldn't make that identification quite yet. It wasn't yet time. So he returned and they sat down to eat. The Egyptians separated from the Hebrews, interestingly, because we're told that it's an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. But I think the greater reason is that God is reminding His people that they are what? They are a holy people. They are a separate people. They are a people devoted to Him. They are a distinct people. And Paul makes that point in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be, a, the, be, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So, so God's reminding them, I believe, that they are the holy, separate people. A people for His own possession. A people for His glory. Now notice also, when Joseph seated them, he did according to their age. But they were grown men. Even Benjamin. It would have been somewhat difficult to know exactly who was the oldest and which in line, you know, all the way down to the youngest Benjamin, unless someone knew that. But how would, how would this ruler know that? And so they looked at each other in amazement, astonishment. It's like, he must have some great powers of understanding, some great wisdom to know what shouldn't be known. And that's exactly what Joseph wanted them to think, okay? Because he wanted them to be intimidated. He wanted them to think that he was this great power, because this will be important in chapter 44 when we come to the final test in a couple weeks from now. But Joseph had a test for him, a test for them here in verse 34. We read that Benjamin's portion was five times that of any of the other brothers. Now that probably represents Joseph's love for his brothers, but it's more importantly a test. And this is the test. It should be obvious. Would the sons of the other women be jealous when the son of Rachel is singled out for a special favor. 
because that's, that's exactly what happened before, right, with Joseph. Jacob gave Joseph that special robe, and the brothers were angry and jealous, furious even, okay? This time they say nothing. They seem content with Benjamin being favored. And yet there's a greater test even to come in chapter 44. And we're told that along with the meal, Joseph allows them to drink. Maybe, well, a little bit too much because the final, the final sentence, the final phrase means they, they actually got drunk. And see, their, mer- their merriment here, their alcoholic fogginess, if you will, meant that they really wouldn't have maybe clear memories later on, the next day, the next several days, of, of what actually happened that evening. Their, their thoughts wouldn't be clear. Their memories wouldn't be clear. And so the story will continue. And indeed, we'll come to a climax when they say, God has found out the guilt of your servants. I mentioned next week that Legree is preaching for this special service, and we'll turn, return to this in, chapter, in, a, in a couple of weeks. But I want to point out that as Joseph is seeking reconciliation with his family, he is continuing to prefigure the Christ who will come to seek and to save the lost, that many might be reconciled with God, becoming true sons and daughters, people of peace, given peace by the Prince of Peace, that God will have a vast family on earth, a vast kingdom in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And so Paul wrote, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You remember that God had made a promise to Abraham. He extracted one man from a a world of pagan people and made a promise to him in, in Genesis chapter 12. And then in chapter 14, he told Abraham that his promise would be fulfilled not through Ishmael, but through his own son with Sarah, even though Abraham and Sarah were were very old at that time. And he confirmed his promise through that great, wonderful ceremony in chapter 15, where he really pledged himself, God did, in fulfillment of his promise. And then in chapter 17, God repeats his promise and says specifically, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you should call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him, meaning Jacob and his offspring. And yet, you know that Jacob had spent his lifetime, what, clutching, grasping, clinging to things that weren't his, loving idols, trying to manipulate others for his own benefit. And he had been quite successful, actually. And so God needed to break Jacob of his idolatry because the people of God must worship him only. The prophet Ezekiel says, uh, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. We are to be devoted to God alone, therefore we can't have idols. And that would be true of Jacob and his family as well. So what was Jacob's idol? Rachel and Rachel's 
two sons. Jacob had, remained, had maintained a strong bias toward Joseph and Benjamin, and that was crushed when Joseph was lost. Now, this is actually somewhat understandable if you recall God's promise to Adam and Eve. Now, I hope you're following me. You know back to that promise I alluded to earlier where God promised a seed to crush the serpent, to crush the evil one, right? And the Old Testament saints were waiting for that seed, that son. In fact, in chapter 5, when Noah was born to Lamech, Lamech declared this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's a clear reference to the fall and to the curse from the fall. Painful toil, okay? And a reference to the one that God promised to raise up as the deliverer, the one who would deliver God's people from the curse of sin. And Lamech thought that Noah would be that one. And that expectation continued from generation to generation to generation. Well, Jacob had assumed that one of the sons of Rachel would be that deliverer, would be that son, that seed, probably Joseph. But Joseph was gone, presumably dead, and now maybe Benjamin. So he couldn't risk Benjamin's life. But God's promise is always by grace and mercy. It's never by merit. It's never by position. It's not by birth order. In fact, of Abraham's children, who was chosen? Isaac. And of Isaac's children, of Isaac's twin sons, Jacob, not the firstborn. And God didn't choose Joseph or Benjamin. Rather, he would choose Judah, the fourth son of the unloved wife, Leah. And Matthew 1, among other places, makes it clear that from Judah would be born Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the only one who offers true peace with God or true shalom with God through reconciliation by bringing forgiveness of sin. I asked earlier at the beginning, what would Jesus do to seek and to save one of his lost children? Oh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the curse of sin, becoming sin, the Holy Son of God, bearing your sin and mine and the sin of all of His people, that He might seek and find and redeem God's people, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are what? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Shalom is by promise. Shalom is by Jesus Christ. He said on the cross, Tetelestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. He did it all. He is the Alpha and the Omega of our salvation. And yet that past accomplishment still has a future fulfillment. We look back, but we look ahead, don't we? We look ahead to what is still coming, what we have not yet received. That future glorious 
reality because Christ accomplished our salvation, but yet we have not yet received our inheritance. Hebrews speaks about what is promised. We don't yet have. We have not yet entered His rest, as He speaks of it in chapter 4 of Hebrews. But that day will come. That day when, when we, as the family of God, as Abraham's offspring, when we will eat and we will dine with Jesus, okay? And Joseph points to this. Think about it. His family once rejected him. But now Joseph invited that same family who once rejected him to his table to eat and to dine with him. What about us? Didn't we once reject Jesus? Didn't we flee from God's presence in Adam and Eve in our own rebellion and sin? And yet he, Jesus, now invites us and welcomes us to his table and we will feast with him eternally. He showed us this even in his earthly messianic ministry. What was his very first sign? It was done at a party, turning water into wine, and even a greater wine than the ordinary wine that was provided originally. And there's the parable of the marriage feast when he said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The kingdom of God compared to a feast, a party, a time of dining and drinking and merriment. And then think about the prodigal son, the return of the prodigal son, so-called, and the father throwing, uh, slaughtering an animal and throwing a party for his son who was once lost but now found and returned and reconciled. With the Lord, there is joy and there is celebration the psalmist speaks of this when he said, You have made known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures now, yes, in this cursed world. There is joy with the presence of the Lord. And certainly forevermore. It is those who don't know the Lord they are the ones who know famine and not feast. They are the ones who have no shalom, who are broken and don't know it, who are cast off and don't know it. But for us who know Him, there is feasting and there is merriment in His presence. Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who will feast eternally with Jesus. So, people of Jesus, disciples of Christ, live now in the fullness of that joy because He came to secure for you an eternal feast of merriment and delight in His presence. The author of Hebrews says, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endure to the end, and you will receive what is promised. And what a promise that is. Amen. Well, Lord God, we shout with joy. We sing with glad hearts. We pray and worship with passion. 
Because our God reigns and our God is great and our Jesus is awesome. Our God is a mighty and awesome God. And our God invites us to the feast with Jesus. And there is joy forevermore in your presence. Teach us that, O God. Let us not go after the idols of the world, for they are nothing. And they are death. They are destruction. Let us worship in spirit and in truth as those who have peace with God, those who are reconciled, those who know you. Let us endure to the end. Let this church stand boldly for the truth and for the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.